Lord, we just thank you for your word. And uh, thank you, Lord, that your word is living. It's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. Book of Hebrews tells us that your word divides flesh and spirit. And so, Lord, we just in, we invite the effect of the living word, Lord. We love the, we love the written word because it leads us to the living word. And, and Lord, we pray that you just do a, a job on the flesh in our lives, Lord, that you'd bring forth the work of your spirit as we uh, spend time with you this morning and as your Holy Spirit speaks to us through the word, Lord, change us, transform us, uh, make us more like Jesus and Lord, help us to know you better. And so God, we just ask your, your blessing upon this time, Lord. We thank you that we can look at this part of the passion story and the passion week this morning and uh, would you just bless it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're jumping back into Matthew chapter 26, and uh, we're going to pick it up in a few minutes here at verse 47, Uh, give a little bit of a refresher and bring us back to speed with where we are in the story of uh, Jesus. This is the night that he is betrayed. Earlier that night with his disciples, Jesus had shared the Passover, Uh, Jesus had uh, identified Uh, that Judas was the betrayer. He had shared with those disciples for the first time the Lord's Supper. He had taken uh, the bread and said, this represents my body that will be broken for you. He had taken the cup and shared it with them and said, this represents the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Jesus told his disciples as they were eating together that just as Zechariah had prophesied that the shepherd would be struck, and that the sheep would uh, scatter. And so following the, the sharing of that meal and celebrating the Lord's Supper for the first time, Jesus, my, uh, with the 12 minus Judas, I went to a quiet place to pray. They went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Between the home that was in Jerusalem and the Garden of Gethsemane, you would have to travel out of Jerusalem down into the what's called the Kidron Valley, and then to the foothill, the foothill of the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And it's interesting that, that in that valley, the Kidron Valley, that they would have walked down after having this meal together, celebrating the Lord's Supper, they would have had to cross a stream that ran through there. And that, that stream is the stream where the blood of the sacrifices would run from the the temple mount and down into that area and be washed down. And so you can imagine Jesus and the disciples traveling from Jerusalem down the valley, crossing the stream that was red with blood and then into the garden. And there in the garden, the battle and the victory of the cross was won as Jesus spent time in prayer and wrestled in the place of the prayer. He prayed this, it says in in Matthew 26, 39, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And the gospel accounts tell us that three times Jesus left his disciples. He went the distance of a stone's throw. You imagine just in your your mind how far you can throw a stone. He went that distance away from his disciples to spend time in prayer by himself, and he prayed these same words. And each time he returned to his disciples, as we saw last week, he found them sleeping. And the third time is where we left off in this story of Matthew. 
where Jesus returned to his disciples, found them sleeping, and at the uh, Halfway through verse 45, it says this. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And we'll pick it up at verse 47 this morning. It says this. While he was still speaking, one of the twelve, a Judas came, one of the twelve, and with them a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now it's really stinging when you think about it that Matthew calls Judas one of the 12. Like we have to get this. This is an inside job. This is scandalous. Matthew wants us to know this. That this is an inside job. One of the 12 doing the betrayal. Now I don't know what you think. Sometimes when you think about the story and you think, okay, these soldiers came to arrest Jesus with some chief priests and some of the elders and maybe there was like a couple dozen people there against Jesus and the disciples but John's gospel tells us that Judas had procured a band of soldiers Matthew tells us that it was a great crowd so you say well what's a band of soldiers well it's it's specific in the Greek language that he had a band of soldiers and that was one-tenth of a Roman legion Roman legions, 6,000 soldiers. And so as Judas comes with one-tenth of that, he's got 600 soldiers. We're not told. Are they Romans? Probably, they're probably Romans. And then there are soldiers from the chief priests, and there's elders, and there are these different folks. And so we have to get the pictures. This is a, this is a mob. They have swords, Matthew says. Some of them have clubs. If they don't have a sword, they've got a club. Some have torches. Some have lanterns. They've come out of the city. It's like, it's not like, I think it was a surprise the betrayer was coming. It's like 600 plus men for sure descending upon Jesus and the 12 and Matthew, or in the 11. And Matthew says that with Judas was a great crowd. Those who would arrest him were not going to leave anything to chance. That's what we're, we have to see in this. That's why there was such a great number. And I don't know what they were expecting from Jesus and his disciples. Were they expecting, you know, them to flee? Were they expecting them to run? Were they expecting them to scatter? You go that way, I'll go this way. We'll all meet up in Galilee. I don't know what they were thinking was going to happen. But they, they assumed, I, I guess, that, that they would run. And maybe even in the midst of the dark, they'd be trying to find Jesus. And so... It's quite the picture, but the gospel accounts make it clear that Jesus was not on the run. Jesus was never on the run from the fate that lay before him. He was submitted to the Father's will. We talked about this last week. The battle had already been won in the place of prayer. And so he rose, and it's amazing. Get this, Jesus goes and he greets his betrayer. He goes to the betrayer. Look at verse 48. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying... The one I kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. So Judas had organized this sign, a sign that would identify who Jesus was. It was a kiss. Now whatever we, we picture in our minds about Jesus, what this tells us about him is what Isaiah said, that there was nothing, you know, that identified him in terms of his nature or appearance that made him outstanding. He wasn't a head taller than anyone else. There was no distinguishing mark, no beauty about him, Isaiah prophesied. 
wasn't in a tailored white suit, you know. There was no aura around him, no glow, some holy glow, like maybe would be in a painting or something like that. He looked like the average man. Wasn't huge in stature. He was hard to pick out in a group of 12 men and you add darkness, the, the, the evening, and they needed someone to single him out and to recognize him and identify him so that he could be arrested and so to identify him. Judas greets him with a kiss. It's a common greeting in that culture. Jesus and Judas had probably greeted one another hundreds of times that way before. They'd spent three years together. And so as Judas came to Jesus, Jesus simply stood there and he let Judas do what Judas had always done. Greetings, Rabbi. But the truth was is that this, this was different this time it was different. The original language actually communicates that Judas didn't just give Jesus a little peck on the cheek. He kissed him repeatedly. That he went on. That it was dramatic. The kiss of betrayal was more dramatic than the normal kiss of, of greeting. Now I think about that. I mean, you think about a, a kiss. I mean, it would have been, it almost seems, you know, just more, just better for, if he had walked up and slapped him in the face and identified him and struck him. But he didn't. He betrayed him with a kiss. And Jesus said this in verse 50. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. Jesus called Judas friend. You know, we call, one of the names that we give to Jesus, one of the titles that we call him by is friend of sinners. That he's a friend of sinners. And Jesus called Judas his friend. Right at, the, right at the very moment of betrayal. It's as though right there in that moment. Jesus gave Judas the opportunity to turn away from what he was doing. To change his mind. And you think about Jesus' friend he says to him. Jesus is the friend of sinners. It's one of the ways that he demonstrates his heart for us is that he continually holds out his hands, the scripture says, to people that are stubborn and obstinate. He greets them. He says, friend, let's have relationship. And at the betrayal, you know, I just think this, what, what had Jesus ever done to Judas but hold out his hands and welcome him in friendship? And I think that that greeting that Jesus gave to Judas, it, it must have stuck with Judas. You think about what he went through in the days to come before he, he took his life. That, that, that rang in his ears that Jesus called him friend in the moment that he betrayed him. And when he came to his, his senses, well, he didn't come to his senses. He took his life. And I just think Judas could not escape the fact that Jesus had called him friend. You know, in the parable of the wedding feast that's earlier in, in Matthew's gospel, in, in the parable of the wedding feast when different guests are invited and different people show up and finally the king goes and he begins to greet some of his guests and he discovers in that parable that there are guests present at the wedding that aren't wearing wedding garments. And the king, as Jesus tells that story, says this to the guests without the wedding garments. Friend. Friend, how did you get in here without any garments? And in the parable, the man was speechless and he gets cast out. 
Or there's the parable of the laborers that we looked at not too many weeks back. Where the, the master went out and he hired laborers to work in his fields and in his vineyard. And they made an agreement that they would hire certain the laborers at the start of the day for a denarius. And as the day went on and laborers were hired throughout the day, at the end of the day when pay was handed out, everyone was paid the same thing. And the laborers who had been working from the very start of the day began to complain against the master. And the master in the parable said this, Friend, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take your pay and go, or do you begrudge my generosity? Friend, just like Jesus called Judas, just like in those two parables, that must have been, there must have been something about Jesus that, or that must have been something about Jesus that bothered Judas. He begrudged his generosity. And though he had made his way into the wedding feast, he had never changed into the proper garment. Jesus called him friend because Jesus had provided everything necessary for Judas to be his friend. Jesus called him friend because he had provided every opportunity for Judas to be his friend. And Judas rejected that which was provided for him in Christ. Judas rejected the opportunities that Jesus provided for him. Judas rejected the outstretched arms and the open arms of Jesus that said, friend, let's have a relationship. And he greeted him with a kiss, but he never loved the master from his heart. And you and I, we're, we're, we're faced with that same decision all the time. The outstretched open arms of Jesus that's his friend. Let's have relationship. This is open. I'm going to open the way through the cross. You and me. We can walk together. We can have relationship together. We can, we can, you can bring me into the center of your life. My arms are open to you. And we can enter into that relation of friendship with Jesus, the friend of sinners. Or we can reduce the relationship to just a kiss. It's just a greeting. Just a greeting with no love from our heart. You know, you read this story and it's like, to me it's like when Jesus said these words to Judas, it's almost like time stands still for a moment and, and then Peter jumps in. <laughs> Here it is in verse 51. It says, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now the other gospel accounts tell us who this was. The man with the sword. It was Peter. Peter the disciple. I've heard lots of people joke about Peter. I'm sure you have too. You know the fisherman with a sword in his hand. It was a good thing he was a fisherman. Otherwise maybe he would have cut the guy's head off or something. Not too skilled with a sword. But I think it's more like Peter was going straight for the man's skull and he happened to just do one of these and he only caught his ear. Glazed the ear. Glazed the ear. Jesus said to him, Peter, you put your sword back. Put your sword back in its place. It's a great picture. We talked about this a little bit last week that, that the Garden of Eden, that 
that man's relationship with God was broken in the Garden of Eden. That in the Garden of Eden, Adam rebelled against uh, the Father, rebelled against God. And as he was removed from the garden, he was removed from relationship and friendship with God. Adam was a man who walked with God. He had friendship with God. As he was removed, the Bible tells us that a sword was put in place to protect the entrance to the garden so that Peter would not have, or so that Adam would not have access to the, the tree of life. And relationship with God was broken. But here in the New Testament, it's in a garden again that relationship with God, the battle for that is, gonna, is won already before the cross happens. And Jesus says, put the sword away. It's a great picture. Put the sword away. I'll heal man. I'll heal his relationship with the Father. Again, we can be friends. The other gospels tell us that the servant of the high priest had a name. His name was Malchus. And the Lord touched his ear and he healed him and he went on to follow Jesus. Did you know that about Malchus? This man that had his ear cut off went on to follow Jesus and be part of the New Testament church. Now you think about it. What would happen in the future days of the church in the early book of Acts when Malchus and Peter show up at church to worship together? Pretty cool. Cool thought. I bet they always sat together. That's what I just guess. That's just my guess. They're like, we got to sit together, man. Every time, Malchus, when you show up, you come sit beside me, man, as a testimony to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. People would whisper, see that dude beside Peter? That's the guy, man. He cut his ear off. Jesus healed him. It's a great thought, isn't it? And this is an account. This is a story where we should, there's, there's an easy lesson to discern, isn't there? Peter, in his heart to defend Jesus, in his heart to protect Jesus, he, he took the sword and he cut someone's ear off. That happens amongst Christians, doesn't it? You know, in zeal, zeal to defend Jesus, and zeal to protect Jesus, you, you pull out the sword of God's word maybe and you just start swinging like a maniac and ears are flying, people are getting hurt. <laughs> You know, sometimes believers, we pull out God's word and we cut off the ear of the unbeliever. You know, we, we do damage so that they can't hear the message because we feel the need to defend Jesus, to protect Jesus. I was thinking about this one time when I was in high school. Uh, I went to get my hair cut and uh, I was there trimming my, trimming my hair and then I felt this pinch on my ear. I thought, oh, that kind of hurt. But the ear's not, you know, not overly sensitive. And so the haircut continued until there was blood running down the side of my face like this and onto my shirt. And then the hairdresser said, oh, did I cut you? I said, I don't know. I felt a little pinch. He's like, oh, I, I got your ear with the scissors. I mean, how you, yeah, how, you, how she did that and not notice. But I don't know. I got a $2 discount <laughs> off my haircut. <laughs> Two bucks. So, you know, needless to say, she never cut my hair again. They didn't need Jesus to put it back on like Malchus. But Jesus heals people. What we see in this story is Jesus heals people who have needlessly had their ears cut off by his followers. Their hearing is damaged because the followers of Jesus wounded them. And you know, I, I think we, we can attempt to, we, we can wound 
people in our attempts to protect Jesus. Like I said, you know, ears flying everywhere. The body of Christ gets maimed. Because well-meaning Christians pull out the sword of God's word and they just start swinging and chopping away at each other. And you know, one of the things we need to, to learn as we mature in Christ is that we don't have to use the sword of the word to cut one another down. We're called to love one another. You know, I think about this situation where Peter pulls out the sword and he injures this man. And I think this was Jesus in control of the situation. Was he in control? Of course he was. He was totally in control. Yeah, but there's 600 soldiers and they're grabbing him and this and that. Jesus was in control. He was in total control. It may have looked like the end of the world to his followers, but Jesus had the whole scene serving his purposes. The whole scene. I just, this morning, there was like a tax in Egypt, I'm sure. Maybe you heard about that. I just heard about it at prayer this morning. I quickly flipped my phone. 43 Christians killed in two bombings in Egypt in their church gatherings this morning. Is Jesus in control of this situation? Can he bring good in the midst of all of that stuff? The, the church in Egypt is like growing fast. They've had more growth probably in the last five years than they, than they have in the last few hundred the church is doing good and, and, and we say, is, is Jesus in control? Jesus is in control. He's always in control. And he can come in and he can heal and he can mend situations and, and, and he can bring good out of it. And the reminder from this story is this, is that Jesus doesn't need us to defend him. It's hard for us sometimes to hear that. So I'm like, oh, no, you need me. No, I don't. I can defend myself, the Lord would say. And often when we take the role of defender of Jesus is when ears start to get cut off. People start to get hurt. I love the story of Spurgeon. I've told it before here. That he was asked one time about defending the word of God. How do you defend God? How do you defend the word? How do you defend Jesus? And he said this. You don't. You just let the lion out of the cage. How do you defend a lion? You don't. You just let the lion out of the cage and Jesus doesn't need our defense. What he calls us to is to come alongside of folks and to love them and he will defend and he will protect himself and his glory and his name and his honor. And I think about, you know, many of the opportunities that the Lord puts between us and I would say this, there's a difference between sharing and defending, isn't there? There's a difference between sharing Jesus and defending Jesus. And we need to be sharers of Jesus. Look at what Jesus says. Is he in control? Well, look what he says. Verse 53, do you not think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Look at Jesus. He says, these guys have one-tenth of a legion, man. Are you kidding me? There's only 600. I say the word and my father sends more than 12 legions. That's 72,000 angels with a word. And he'll send them. That tells us that, that Jesus was in control. That though 
the situation looked to be stacked against him, the disciples and Jesus were not outnumbered. And you know that's true for you and me. In your life you are never outnumbered by the enemy when you align yourself with Jesus Christ. No matter what the circumstances appear to be, right Neil? No matter what the circumstances appear to be, when you're on the side of Jesus, you're on the side of victory. You know, it's an awesome thing, I would say, when, when you learn in your walk with the Lord that you don't have to defend Jesus. When you realize that he is perfectly capable of looking after his own name, his own glory. And so our job is not to protect or to defend or to avenge. Our job's to love. Our job's to share. And so as Jesus makes it clear that, or he makes it clear that he, he didn't need protection because everything that was unfolding was happening according to the will of his father so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus said it has to go down this way. The word of God, the prophets have to be f- fulfilled. Look at verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come ag- out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching. You did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then the disciples left him and fled. Am I a robber? Am I a thief? That you come at me with swords and clubs to capture me? It's dark out but Jesus is shedding light on the whole situation. On the hearts. Why do you you come after me like I'm dangerous? Why do you come at me in the night? Why do you come at me under the cover of of darkness? He says, I always make myself accessible to anyone who wants access to me. I'm accessible. Made himself accessible in the temple. We, we, We saw that in Matthew, that little children came to him, that they worshiped him. But the scheme of those who were arresting him, the plot, they, they, their plot uh, depended on force because they, they, they had this imagination that Jesus was their enemy or they made him their enemy. It depended on force and their plot depended on the cover of darkness. And as they arrested Jesus, Matthew tells us that all of the disciples fled and they, they left him. He was alone. Totally necessary. It seems terrible, but it was necessary for the scripture to be fulfilled. He was alone, the Lamb of God, him alone, who would take away the sins of the world. Verse 57 says, Then those who had seized him, or who had seized Jesus, led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter, following him at a distance, As far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. We talked a little bit about Caiaphas last week, that he was not the high priest and in that position by birthright, but he was there because his father had placed him, his father-in-law, sorry, had placed him there, Annas. And they were controlling the temple markets and controlling all this amongst their, their family. And so Jesus is brought and Actually, as, as they've dug around in that area, they believe that Caiaphas's house and Annas's house were side by side with a courtyard in the middle. It's an interesting picture. And so Jesus is brought into that, that courtyard. And then we read about Peter. 
says he was following Jesus at a distance. You're always in trouble when you follow Jesus from a distance. You know, Peter followed from a distance as Jesus was led into the high priest's palace. And, and Luke actually tells us that Peter began to warm himself. It's a great picture. He began to warm himself by the enemy's fire. When you consider Peter's situation, he, he, he actually defies the counsel of Psalm 1. Remember Psalm 1, it says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And Peter makes that journey as he, as he follows Jesus from a distance. He, he walks in the counsel of the wicked and then he stands outside and then he sits down in their counsel. He sits with the scoffers, sits with the, the guards, the seat of the scoffer. We'll come back to Peter in a bit. Verse 59 says this. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward. So a meeting of the Sanhedrin was called. All the, all the leaders, they come in, in, in the night, the whole council, and they're seeking false testimony to put Jesus to death. This was essentially like the Jewish Supreme Court gathering in the night, all of the Sanhedrin. And right from the beginning, this is an illegal trial. They were not allowed, according to Old Testament law, to gather uh, in darkness. They were not allowed to gather under the cover of night. Another thing that they were not allowed to do was to pronounce a sentence on the same day that you arrested a man. The Old Testament law describes that, that there had to be a gap between his arrest and, its, and his sentencing. And so this was an illegal trial because... They had already done this. They had determined that Jesus was guilty beforehand. This was just, you know, going through the motions so that they had the appearance of everything being legal and just, but it was not. I mean, they couldn't even produce an honest witness against him. You know, it says here that at last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple and to rebuild it in three days. So Matthew doesn't tell us, but like after who knows how many witnesses, like how many did they parade through this little kangaroo court trying to find Jesus guilty? And finally, these two come and say, he said he would destroy the temple. We know what Jesus said when he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. I mean, these guys didn't even get it right. We know that Jesus was not referring to the temple. He was talking about himself but it was a serious matter to speak against the temple but still there's no traction even when they are bringing all of these witnesses and so finally the high priest interjects look at verse 62 the high priest stood up and said have you no answer to make what is it that these men testify against you but Jesus remained silent you know, when we look at Jesus and you, you consider this trial, there's kind of two things that are interesting to note about him. The first one is his silence. That he says not a word. In the midst of all of these people bringing accusations against him. Remember, remember we talk about Jesus can defend himself? 
It's interesting that in this defense of himself, he says, I'm not saying nothing. I'll just be quiet. Go ahead. Bring the accusations. Bring it. Say all the things that you want to say. You know, it's been kind of interesting. Uh, just over the last few days, we, um, we, we put together a Good Friday Facebook page. Will pulled that together for us, and we just boosted it in the community for the four churches in our gathering. And we've had to, de- we've had to delete comments of people just attacking attacking Jesus, attacking the fact that we would get together and it's like, okay, we talked about, well, what do you, what do, you do? You know, how do you defend? You know, it's, it's good, just delete it, I guess. But it's interesting to watch people's response. And Jesus, one of the things that we see here is that he just, he stayed silent. He stayed silent. But the other thing that's interesting to note about him is that what he does say when he speaks. And so you think about this story, witness after witness brought forward false testimony. There's no defense lawyer. There's, no, there's nobody there standing in Jesus' stead to try and bring some balance to this whole situation. During the whole time, Jesus says not a word. He's silent. He's silent because I think he knew what they were saying was full of lies. That the, He knew the intent of their hearts. He knew the purpose of their lies. Correction was pointless because there was a decision made in the hearts of these men. They were putting him to death. Even when the high priest questions him, no answer. Then the high priest puts Jesus under an oath. Check it out. He says, and then the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ the son of God. Caiaphas essentially swore Jesus into court like we swear someone into court. The false witnesses are getting nowhere, so the high priest said, let's hear the testimony of his own lips. You speak, Jesus, from your own lips. You've been remaining silent this whole time. Tell us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And Jesus said, you can't handle the truth. No, he didn't say that. Are you the Christ, the Son of God, is the question. Until that point, like I said, Jesus is silent. But now, King Jesus speaks. Check it out, verse 64. You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's an awesome answer. You know, sometimes people say, oh, I don't know. Did Jesus, did Jesus claim to be the Son of God? Did he out and out say that? Look at Look at those verses. Caiaphas, the high priest, asked him, and he said, you said so. In other words, that's right. I am. I am exactly who you said I am. And as Jesus answered the question, he added something that was even more startling to Caiaphas and those that were there than, than the question that, that he had been asked. He said in regards to the question on the first side of it, uh, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? He said, you have said so. Simple, direct, affirming what the high priest had questioned. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He claimed it. He said it. But he wasn't going to play games with the high priest. And he wasn't going to play games with the false witnesses. With them he was silent because he had done nothing wrong, but in regards to this direct question, are you the Christ, the Son of God, he affirmed 
He affirmed that he was exactly whom the high priest asked. And you can imagine the scorn that was on their face. The hate that filled their heart. And then Jesus added something. He said, but I tell you. From now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. And coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, this is what he was saying. I am the Christ, the son of God. And in spite of your unbelief. You're going to see it. Isn't that awesome? You know scripture says. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. Look at. You can be here this morning. And be unbelieving. But I'm, I'm telling you. You're going to believe one day. <laughs> in spite of your unbelief. You'll see with your eyes. That Jesus is the Christ. The son of God. You'll see it with your eyes. And I love this. Because Jesus. Claims victory. Even. In what appears to be the hour of defeat. In the face of opposition. Jesus claimed not only was he the Christ the son of God. But he said I'm the son of man whom Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel 7 for a moment. It's right after the book of Ezekiel. So if you find Ezekiel. Cruise to Daniel. Daniel was a man whom the Lord spoke to in visions. And when Jesus gives this answer, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He was referring to Daniel chapter 7 and the high priest and all of the Sanhedrin knew it. Check out Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. Daniel tells us, I'll give you a minute to get there. Daniel tells us, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Son of man, son of God, the Messiah. Are you the Christ, the son of God? You have said so and I tell you from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You don't believe? Well, in spite of your unbelief, you will see. You'll see these things. The whole scene was not lost on the high priest. Verse 65 of Matthew 26 tells us this. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and they struck him. And some slapped him saying prophesy to us you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Incredible picture the high priest when he heard all this. He did what was customary in their culture. When one was in a time of uh, pain or grief. He tore his robes. He tore his robes. Jacob did that. Remember when, 
when the brothers brought back word that Joseph, they brought back the coat of many colors with blood on it, and they said, I think your son is dead. He tore his robes in his grief and his anguish. King David did that. Before he was king, when he heard of uh, Saul's death in battle, he tore his robes in grief and in mourning. And Caiaphas here, as he hears these words of Jesus, he, he tears his robe, and what he does is very significant. See, as Caiaphas tore his, his robe, he was really symbolizing something that he didn't know that he was doing. He was symbolizing the end of the old Levitical priesthood because God had no more use for him as high priest. God had no more use for the Levitical high priestly role. God tore up the priesthood, so to speak, as Caiaphas tore his robe because there would be a new priest and he would be called the great high priest. One who Hebrews tells us would come in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Meaning that he's a priest whose reign, his rule has no beginning and it has no end. No end. You know, it's interesting that the book of Leviticus actually says that ordered, it was law, that the high priest was never to tear his robe. Never before the people was he to tear his robe in anguish or in grief. But Caiaphas did so. Just like all of the surrounding details of the whole, the whole scene, they're just breaking the law all over the place. Striking Jesus, spitting in his face, doing all of these things. Illegal for a night trial. Illegal for them to pass judgment on the same day a man was arrested. Illegal for the high priest to tear his robes. And those who scoffed at him began to strike him spit in his face. Some slapped him. As they did so, they mocked him. Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And as they did these things, they, they revealed what is in the heart of man. They, they, they revealed what God was like and they revealed what man was like. They spit in his face and they... they they struck the Savior as he stood there in silence. In the face of everything that was going on, this is just like the opening act of everything that's about to unfold in the passion story and what Jesus is going to go through. And in it, Jesus reveals God and God's love for man. These events that are, are leading to the cross show how far man is willing to go and to express his hatred towards God. But they also show how far God is willing to go and express his love for mankind, for his creation. Jump with me to verse 69. We'll read through a little bit here. Quickly look at the story of Peter. In the midst of all this, verse 69 tells us, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. 
And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man and immediately the rooster crowed. I love Peter in scripture because Peter's like so human you can relate to Peter. We all feel like Peter a little bit. And I think there's kind of three things in Peter's story that I want to point out to you this morning. And the first one is one we already read. Peter's following at a distance. The second is Peter's denials. But then the third is Peter's memory. How God reminds him. You know, love at a distance. Peter following Jesus from a distance. It's interesting that The 11 all fled. There was only two that were present that night. We know John was there too. The other gospels tell us that John was there and Peter was there. And so as much as we want to take shots at Peter, I would say this, at least Peter was there. (laughs) At least he was there. It may have been from a distance, but at least he was present. That says a lot more than nine other guys that weren't there anywhere nearby. But Peter's failure was this, is that he was Loving Jesus from a distance, following him from a distance, warming himself by the enemy's fire. And we can do that, you and I. Love from a distance, we just keep Jesus right over there. Hang out at the enemy's fire a little bit. You know, we just, I'm there, I'm following. But I like a little bit of space, Jesus, in this relationship. You know, when I want to hang out with the enemy, warm myself at his fire. And that's dangerous territory because as we see, it leads to Peter denying Jesus. His love is challenged. His love for Christ is challenged and what happens is is that Peter cowardly denies Jesus. Little girl, little servant girl. (laughs) I mean, when you can't defend yourself, I'm not slamming little girls, but I'm talking about as a big fisherman who's followed Jesus for three years And when you can't say to a little servant girl, yes, I follow him, there's a problem with your testimony. There's a problem with how far the distance is from you and Jesus. You know, if there's anyone you should be able to share Jesus with, it's someone that's young. But when challenged by just a little servant girl, Peter backs down. It happens twice. And I would say this about this story of Peter. See, Peter was finding out what was in him. He was finding out what was in his heart. And you know, as men and women who love Jesus, you're going to find yourself in your life, you're going to find yourself in situations that are going to reveal what's inside of you. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when the Lord leads me into those situations, I don't like what I find inside. It's very disappointing. It's like, oh God. Is that who I am? Is that what I am without you? And God will bring you into those situations and he will reveal to you who you are so that he can do this, so that he can deliver you from the person that you are. You know, there's Peter. He he backed down to two servant girls, this story tells us. Felt like the eyes were upon him, you know, that everybody was looking at him. And in that moment when eyes were like, yeah, you follow Jesus, don't you? He panicked and he denied. He denied under oath. He said, I I swear, I don't know the man. You know, I think about this, that Jesus was put under oath. 
The, the high priest put him under oath and he said, that's right, I'm the Christ. Peter took an oath and he said, no, I deny him, I don't follow him. It's interesting that in the, the last time that he's confronted, it, they, they, they say this, they say, your speech betrays you. You're Galilean. And you know, it's, it's, it's true for us. When we follow Jesus, I, th- I often think this, I think, you know, our speech just betrays us. Even if we should try and deny him. Uh, you know, walk like a Christian, you talk like a Christian, walk like a duck, talk like a duck. It's a duck, it's a Christian. <laughs> What was happening here was what Jesus told Peter would happen. Satan was sifting him. Satan was sifting him and when his love was challenged, he responded in cowardness. But I love verse 75 and I don't think we emphasize this verse enough in the story of Peter and this is where I want to lay the weight this morning in terms of Peter's story. It says this, And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. God's given us a a memory, a holy reminder, a, a mind where he's put his thoughts and his word and he's put his spirit in us. And you know, there's something awesome about a love for Jesus Christ. Love for Jesus Christ remembers. Even when it sees itself for who who it is without Jesus. Even in the place of denial, love remembers. It remembers Jesus and it goes out and it weeps bitterly. Love remembers and it's contrite. It repents. This is the victory of this story, you know. Like we always talk about Peter as a failure, but I'm telling you, Peter is a victor. Peter is a victor and here's why he's a victor. Because he went and he remembered and he was contrite. He went back and he repented and he wept before the Lord. You know why Judas is a failure? Because he remembered and he took his life. He wasn't contrite. He didn't go back to Jesus. And I think about Peter, how quickly he was contrite once he remembered. And I want to leave you with this thought this morning. It's this. When you fail, when you drop the ball, when you see yourself in the mirror for who you are as the man or woman of the flesh, and you think, remember and be contrite. Remember and go before the Lord. And if you need to weep, weep. Pour out your heart before him. Say, Lord, I remember. I remember. You know, when you read about David, it's amazing. I mean, we know, we know the story of David. He's like the king after God's own heart. He's the king after God's own heart. And yet he's a murderer. He's an adulterer. He's a man of war. He's a man of blood. You know, you read all about him, but then you read some of his psalms. I mean, I'm in my quiet time, I'm in the psalms right now, and it's like, I read these words from, from David, and I think, David, how can you talk about yourself as being so righteous and this and that? Like, you're a murderer, man. You're this and you're that. But you know, David learned to see himself for who God saw him as. He remembered, he repented, and he took on the identity that the Lord had given him. And that's true for you and I. We need to do the same thing. Remember and return. 
You know your enemy, the roaring lion, do you know what his best weapon is? It's condemnation. It's condemnation. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Peter, to you and I, is the example. Remember, return, repent, be contrite. Look at, you can't kiss him in the face and not love him from your heart. Jesus doesn't need us to defend him because when you are with him, you are never outnumbered. There's trouble when you follow him from a distance. And as we see in Peter, remember and return. Let's pray this morning. Would you guys stand with me? I invite you to stand. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for your love, Lord. Lord, as we read this story this morning, we don't want to be people like Judas. You just kiss your face and yet you don't have our heart. Lord, we want you to have our heart, to have all of who we are. And so, Lord, right, right now, this, this morning, we just say to you, Jesus, have my heart. We say that because the heart is the center of our lives. It's, it's the seat of our emotions, our affections. It's the center, it's the, the, the muscle that gives life to this whole body. It's the center of the spiritual part of our lives. And so, Jesus, we just say, have our hearts. Have all of us, Lord. For each one of us this morning, God, we just make that our prayer. Maybe you've never prayed that before. It's that simple with Jesus. Jesus, you have my life. I surrender to you. I turn away from all that running from you. Turn away from that sin. I I don't want to just kiss your face. I want you to have my heart. And so, Jesus, we surrender our hearts to you this morning. Lord, for those, maybe they've had a taste of their flesh this week and it's left a bad taste in their mouth. I can't believe that's what I am without Jesus. Lord, we thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would be people who remember quickly your word and who quickly go to the place of contrition and repentance. That we'd be reminded that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you, Jesus, for your work of redemption in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. This morning, God, I just pray your blessing over your people, Lord. I pray that you would go with them, Lord. I pray, God, that they would sense your spirit upon their lives, Lord. I pray that they would have a hunger uh, for you throughout this week, Lord. Would you bless them? And we thank you, Lord, for meeting us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.